welcome to Chinese Revolutions, a podcast about how China came to be the way that it is today, looking at revolutionary movements in modern China, starting from 1839 going forward to the present. I am your host, Nathan Bennett. I lived in China for seven years. This podcast is a sort of love letter and farewell letter to that country. The usual beginning announcements. Uh, if you'd like to support the podcast, please rate and review and subscribe on all the platforms. Share with your friends. Uh, you can go to buymeacoffee.com slash crpodcast. You can go to chineserevolutions.substack.com if you'd like to join the substack. And please email me at chineserevolutions at gmail.com if you'd like to tell me more about what you'd like to see in the substack. I don't do very much with it at the moment, but anyway. So here we are. We're getting more into the Taiping Rebellion. We're in the latter half of talking about the Taiping Rebellion. Uh, last week we talked about Hong Rangan and his position within the Taiping hierarchy. We also, we also talked about we also talked about how revolutions succeed or fail to integrate ideas from the outside. All decisions have to be intelligently taken. You can't let your cultural norms overtake making an effective revolution. And the ideas in the revolution have to come all the way across. The revolutionaries have to actually win the war. Domestic actors have to be the ones taking the action. It's possible for a foreign power to put in a sock puppet administration, but consider, say, the Baltic countries. They just popped right back to European democracy despite decades of Soviet rule and oppression. Consider the Chinese Communist Revolution. They went their own way despite heavy Soviet influence that you'd expect uh, in a uh, communist revolution of the time. Foreigners might have influence, but they won't be the ones to make the pivotal decisions or do the pivoting. This episode, uh, we'll be learning about some of the foreigners who got in close with the Taiping. There will be a few episodes on this. We're, again, following the book Autumn in the Heavenly Kingdom, China, the West, and the Epic Story of the Taiping Civil War by Stephen R. Platt. So Hong, Hong Run Gan, let's review very quickly who he is. He's a well-educated in Chinese and Western sides of things, uh, cousin of Hong Xiuquan, the leader of the Taiping. He has years of experience with foreign culture, from living in Hong Kong, he was ordained to some level in conventional Protestant religion. Uh, he had been a preaching assistant. He did speak English. He learned that while in Hong Kong. He has a high official position in the Taiping hierarchy, appointed directly by the Taiping leader. He's in charge of meeting with foreigners. He takes care of the pageantry of showing cultural understanding of their ways and understanding their concerns. He's the guy who knew how to deal with foreigners, so he's the one who did it. We're going to start looking at some of the foreigners who visited Nanjing, 
under the type uh, when it was under typing control. Today's episode will focus on Issachar Roberts. Uh, some of what we'll see today is things like why the Taiping were a little bit too Chinese to be a successful revolution, uh, some of what foreigners thought they would do with the Taiping, the influence they thought they would have, and the role that foreigners fell into as far as the Taiping were concerned, and how tai- how Chinese interests determined what boxes foreigners would operate in. Issachar or Issachar? Anyway, uh, that's the the name of one of the tribes of Israel, and so in a very, very Protestant Tennessee, that's just the sort of name you might give a child, like Issachar Roberts. Former Southern Baptist preacher from Tennessee, and Southern Baptist here does refer to the specific Baptist denomination from America. He was, for a short time, the teacher of Hong Xiuquan and Hong Rengan, in Canton, Guangzhou, down there in South China. He was the first to notice the importance of Hong Rengan's story about the Taiping movement, told to a missionary in 1852. We covered that story uh, a number of episodes ago. He was an unstable and eccentric character. He was rejected by the Baptist Board for Missions in Boston in 1836. He was a mediocre preacher, uh, so even though the Baptists declined to take him on, he donated a piece of land to self-fund his own mission work. That piece of land turned out to be worthless, but they uh, kept him anyway. He couldn't make friends with other missionaries. He was very bad on that front. There were accounts of his abusing a Chinese servant or cooking the books uh, in the uh contribution records for missionary work, and accounting is a really big deal for missionaries. They're totally funded by donations, so if confidence in their work drops off, that means no more donations. So, like, he was, you know, so I'm not digging into a lot of the abstruse details of this guy's life, but if you're messing with the accounting and you are a European or American missionary, that's really, really bad. Uh, so he's a loose cannon if there ever was one. The Baptists cut off their relationship with him in 1852 after some more demonstrations of his ability, his inability to get along with other missionaries. Like there was a case where he, they, somebody really needed help and he didn't give it. He didn't want to help. Uh, just a little side note about how missionaries get along with each other. Oftentimes, missionaries' biggest problem is other missionaries. Missionaries are like manure. They do their best if you spread them around. And the kinds of people who become missionaries, they're people who care deeply, but if they're not digging into the essential work that they're supposed to be doing, some people find them annoying even then, but they're high-energy, high-motivation people, and if they have nothing to do, they'll start digging up other things best not disturbed. Are other missionaries zealous enough? Are they into the Are they into the task enough? Like so, you know, how would you feel if someone used a shovel on you instead of you know out in the dirt in the garden? 
So this is the, the, the kind of person who is the loose cannon. He's one of these highly motivated, highly energetic people for, for a certain cause. Well, in, uh, so cut off by the Baptists, in 1853, he's invited by Hong Xiuquan to come over and join the, the Taiping, like by the heavenly king himself, letter from the, the highest level in the rebel side. The invitation letter helped him recover a little prestige after the Baptists gave him the boot. But he was very strongly warned by U.S. officials to stay away from the rebels. He went back to the U.S. He traveled around the South and the West, speaking and raising money for the Taiping cause. In part, he's casting himself as the guy who can bring some conventional Protestant Christianity to the Christianity-inspired rebels, the Anglican Bishop of Hong Kong even thought he would be the religious advisor to a future Chinese emperor. So this is something we're going to see as we go on. China is sort of the this place at this time for cranks, frauds, and adventurers to go. Uh, treaty ports, for example, will have something for them to do. They'll have some sort of job that they can do speaking their own European language. Um, Chinese politics might have some role for them to play, hero, reformer, luminary, sage, something epic. They feel like there's something they can do. Uh, on both sides of the Taiping War, there are going to be foreigners, foreign adventurers taking up roles. They might fire the popular imagination, but not quite represent the national will. You know, for example, I'll be happy to hear that Lawrence of Arabia came back with a win for our team, but if he's screwed up, that's on him. Like, you know, he's, he doesn't represent me. Uh, there are these odds and ends, floatsome and jetsome of foreign adventurers are part of how Chinese actors, you know, people making decisions, doing a lot of the critical things in China, how they have access to modern political ideas, science, technology, military technology, military methods. So, like some examples from modern news, you have uh, the stories about British and American military pilots retired. Um, they're being hired by the Chinese military to brief them on Western aviation tactics and strategy. These guys are hardly representative of their nations, but they are channels bringing knowledge to China. They are examples of how China stayed connected with the rest of the world, how it heard about things, how it heard about new ways of doing things. Uh, English teachers... Uh, I myself was one of the odds and ends who ended up in China. I taught them things about American culture. I taught them things about the English language. How that's all going to influence history, I don't know. I was in the city of Harbin, and I had I took the equivalent of a Chinese Uber, and the driver was able to talk to me because he had had English classes. So, you know, kind of what I thought about him was it. It's like maybe this is like one of the students I've had five years later, ten years later. Well, back to Issachar Roberts. He returned to China in 1856 after three or four years of wandering around the United States. Only, in October only on October 13 of 1860 
did he finally manage to get to Nanjing to be with the Taiping. He moved into a room in Hongren Gan's residence, a palace there in Nanjing. He had the idea that he was going to be the one teaching the Taiping, but he was basically stuck doing translations, interpretation work, and other foreign diplomacy chores. He went around in second-hand robes, uh, passed on to him by Hong Ren Gan, wore a funny hat, uh, you know, all in line with Chinese imperial court ceremony or some idea of it, such as the Taiping were using. Uh, and if you recall the Kowtow issue with the McCartney expedition back at the end of the 1700s, Foreigners didn't really want to do the full ceremony of prostrating themselves before the Chinese emperor. It was not fitting their station. They're diplomats of an equal sovereign country. It's not really their way of doing things. It's not their emperor, not their king. So why should they bow before the Chinese emperor? And Issachar Roberts was, a, was an American Baptist. So every bit of culture that might have worked for him doing some sort of ritual obeisance before a foreign leader just wasn't there. Americans are egalitarian, and Tennessee is not the place you'd go for people to have bow and scrape before you. Uh, Baptists are against the forms of church that might have priests and bishops with traditions and customs and protocol and you know, calling the the bishop lord and all that sort of thing. Uh, so here we're we're looking at how the Taiping got to be a little little bit too Chinese to be able to fully digest a lot of the ideas that were coming through to them. Um, here's another uh, cultural example story. Once I was in Ghana for an internship for my major in college. And I was having having to do with linguistics and and anthropology. I was in a village for a month in an area where the tribal structure was with ranks of chiefs, like so sub chief, paramount chief of the village, higher paramount chiefs above them. So I, I met the paramount chief of the village I was living in. Um, you're supposed to take your shoes off before entering the chief's presence. I did this, but the chief, who had the experience with foreign cultures, actually sent someone to get my shoes to have me put them back on, because he said something like, that's not your way of doing things, so don't, you know, don't take your shoes off when you come visit me, kind of thing. Later, I went to a meeting of this paramount chief and all the village sub-chiefs for his, you know, for that town, that area, I felt uneasy about keeping my shoes on when everyone else had taken theirs off, but the chief himself had previously told me to leave them on. So, um, so it was this weird thing where they, like, okay, here, I, I'm fine doing whatever they do to show respect to a certain level of person, but, you know, he himself made an allowance for me because... However they did things, that wasn't the way I did things. Um, so, you know, like, you, you, you'll, you know, but then, 
then just kind of another thing from that trip, one of the one of the greatest forms of showing respect is is squatting. Like like that's that's kind of like how they bow very deeply. Like you can bow, but then if you squat, that's like one of the the greatest forms of bowing. Uh yeah, so I'd bow to men who looked like they were sub-chiefs, and they'd do the full squat thing back to me. The paramount chief explained that it was kind of like giving respect for respect. And there's also the explanation somewhere, I forget who told me this, they didn't know if I was some big man in the wider world, so just in just in case they were making sure to show the full respect for who might be an important person... That was my experience in in very small town Ghana. You know, but this is China here, with you know millennia of tradition concerning their their cultural superiority, their self respect concerning their place in the world. Just a very different sense of who they are in relation to the outside world, the, the Taiping had a full sense of their identity as a Chinese dynasty. They had a full sense of being representatives of God on earth. The foreigners were going to be the ones doing the bowing. They were going to be the ones listening to the Taiping. Um, today, China has fully in integrated with modern diplomacy, so respect for China's regime today is more in line with norms that have been established internationally through the 1800s and 1900s. So China is able to throw its weight around and get recognition by Western powers that whatever it was that China just did means something in terms recognizable on the world stage as determined by European diplomatic norms that have established themselves around the world. China's in the United Nations. It has veto power on the uh, UN Security Council. It's in the World Trade Organization. It's in the World Health Organization. Um, you know, in the International Monetary Fund, it is... Like when when China's working in developing nations, it's like China has discussions directly with institutions like the IMF because they're they're working in the same space. China has fully like so as we get up there in our progress in this podcast, we're going to see that. China has fully gotten into whatever it, it it has fully had its revolution to come in line with the modern world, to come in line with that that it has you know it has gotten rid of the old imperial system and it has adapted it has adopted a new system that and so we will explore that in future episodes. 
so here's Issachar Roberts in Nanjing, and you know it takes a long. T- so for something like the 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 kowtow issue, he doesn't want to he doesn't want to do that. He doesn't want to do that ceremony. Um, but he, so this really delays him getting an audience with the heavenly king, who isn't just his old student. He's the heavenly king now. Uh, and so when he finally got an audience, it was kind of like he was shoved in with some other Taiping functionaries, and he's awkwardly standing behind the, the Taiping functionaries who are bowing, and Hongren Gan shouts, Mr. Roberts, worship the Heavenly Father. And so in surprise, he bows before Hong Xuquan. So here he is, just kind of dazzled uh, with everything going on. You know, so here he is. He thought he would be the the mentor of the leader of the Taiping. He just kind of ended up as an assistant to the foreign ministry, as it were. You know, Autumn in the Heavenly Kingdom says he did become a sort of mouthpiece for the Taiping leadership in Shanghai. I can kind of. Cr- you know, compare this to my experience in Chinese media. I helped them make their own case to the English-speaking world. I helped them uh, edit their translations, but I wouldn't say I was important in China. I did serve a function for Chinese state media, but I was by no means some sort of famous person in China. I did get an award for, you know, from the agency I worked for, but. I didn't, you know, I wasn't an important person. Um, uh, Issachar Roberts wrote letters to Shanghai newspapers about what it was really like in Taiping, Nanjing, and he argued that foreign governments should make treaties with the Taiping. They'd basically earned it with their victories on the battlefield. It's what foreign powers essentially wanted for themselves, right? Um you know, next week we'll continue with some other travelers who came to see the Taiping-held Nanjing, and we'll see some more regular representatives of the outside world. Issachar Roberts is a nice sample of some of the uh, interesting sorts of figures who will show up in Chinese revolutionary contexts, and he'll help the Taiping make some of their connections with the outside world. And so we'll see other such figures as we get into future revolutions. Um, Again, if you'd like to support the... Okay, so that's it for this episode. If you'd like to support the podcast, please go to buymeacoffee.com slash crpodcast, chineserevolutions.substack.com. If you'd like to join the substack, please send me an email at chineserevolutions at gmail.com. Again, I have been your host, Nathan Bennett. Thank you for coming along again for this episode, and I'll see you again next week for the next episode.